But I, I do think it's very, it's very difficult for someone coming out of an evangelical or any sort of Christian context to kind of get your head around the idea that there is no salvation. There is, there, you cannot be saved from this, right? That, like you, you're just going to, you know, uh, the, 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 there's nobody coming to save us, and and you are going to to go down uh, damned. You are listening to Fruitless, a podcast hosted by me, Josiah Sutton. And also, my good friend, Josh Christensen, who joins me for just this episode. This is episode 16, Climate Apocalypticism and Evangelicalism, where Josh and I talk to Tad DeLay, the author of Against, What Does the White Evangelical Want, about climate change and evangelicalism. Maybe I'll go ahead and say, welcome to Fruitless. Um, I'm joined today by Josh Christensen. Hello. I've been here before. You've been here before, and he's joining me as a second mic, as a co-host, to talk to Tad DeLay, author of Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? Thanks for inviting me on. Excited to be here. Yeah. Um, Josh uh, introduced me to Tad's book uh, probably uh, two years back, was it? Something like that. And it's it's been a, a collective fixation of ours for both yeah for those those years and so yeah what better way to kind of uh, actualize that collective fixation than of course talking to the author himself, <laughs> um, particularly about the the subject of evangelicalism and environmental catastrophe, climate denial, etc. Um, but first, why don't you uh, briefly tell everybody, if they haven't read Against or they're not familiar with it, what, what's it about? Against is organized around five chapters called uh, Against Future, which is on uh, in apocalypticism and uh, climate change, uh, against knowledge, which is on uh, school and segregated, uh, you know, like the, the battle over over the, the position of the white pupil and the black pupil, uh, which uh, kind of, you know, has connections to the abortion debate, uh, against sexuality against um, a chapter on against reality which is uh, sort of a media studies and propaganda uh, conservative right-wing AM talk radio Fox News and all of that and then against society which is sort of a, a study on conservatism uh, theories of fascism sort of reactionary movements um, and the book is is kind of you know the, the subtitle is what does the white evangelical want uh, which I you know sort of at the end of the book, I kind of realized, uh, I, I never actually kind of say, you know, I never kind of summarize what I think the white evangelical really wants. And then the mm -hmm. uh, Clayton Crockett, who wrote the foreword to the book, uh, had a wonderful little line where he says, you know, what does the white evangelical want? They want to destroy us if us is anybody who wants a flourishing civilization or, or dignity in life. Um, and so it's a, it's a study of this peculiar moment of white evangelicalism uh, written during the, the Trump years. But, you know, my argument is that that it's not an aberration that passes once Trump is out of office. Um, this is sort of a long-term project uh, that has been kind of with us more or less for uh, a little over a half century now. I, I kind of think of white evangelicalism as being born in the aftermath of the desegregated school, and I, I try to kind of backdate it more to that uh, region of time rather than uh, the traditional 
um, you know, um, a way of thinking about it as sort of a, a reaction to Roe versus Wade in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, I, I'm really trying to think about like what this reactionary movement wants, why it is so hostile, why it seems to have no problem sort of alienating its grandchildren or even wishing away the world. Um, and, you know, to, to say it all, create this massive destruction machine in the form of the Republican Party. Uh, and and support ecocidal politics that uh, that are mm-hmm. that are you know going to trigger a six mass extinction event while we laugh laugh ourselves into the grave. Yeah. Oh man. So that's the general project. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, and it's a it's a fantastic book. I think a lot of the reason that it grabbed me so much was your claim that it was the most dangerous religious you know b- belief system that's ever been produced. And at the time, I, I remember when that that when I read that claim, I, I kind of was taken aback, and I'm like, I, I don't know if that's true. And then it was when you got into the climate, you know, proceeded on into the the discussion of climate change, and the reminder that these beliefs are held by people who have the power to end the world. That suddenly the belief system started to feel less like you know just the thing I grew up with, and more. A potentially dangerous political weapon, an incredibly dangerous political weapon. Yes, I yeah, say. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, my intuition has been for for quite some time, kind of going back um, through my doctoral studies and even kind of during my first masters when I was studying theology. Uh, I've had this intuition that that kind of a lot of the indifference that we see towards uh, e- ecological policy has a lot to do with uh, the the biggest voter base within the Republican Party uh, just genuinely not believing that there will be a 22nd century at all. So we have pretty good polling data on this, not as good as mm-hmm. I wish that we had, but I think it's fair to say that depending on how you word the question and how you word the question matters, whether you ask people, will Jesus come back in the next five decades or will Jesus come back in your lifetime? Those, those are two very different questions that tap into different types of anxieties, whether you're worried about dying or would prefer to have your life cut <laughs> short and so forth. But mm-hmm. depending on how we word the yeah, question, yeah. something like one-fifth to one-third of Americans don't believe that there will be uh, – a 22nd century at all. Uh, among white evangelicals, it's closer to two-thirds. That's a fairly small percentage of the population. Only about one in six uh, Americans are white evangelicals, and that's shrinking a little bit due to demographic changes. Uh, but it is does play an outsized role in Republican politics. Um, you know, I'll also say that, you know, it's, it's not clear to me that even if we had 100% belief in a 22nd century and 100% belief in climate change being fueled by fossil fuels, uh, it's not necessarily clear to me that that would have a massive effect on um, ecological policy, right? Because we're still kind of trapped within this uh, capitalist machine uh, that has uh, uh, what Marx calls a law of accumulation that will exploit the, the the easiest return on investment, right? So, you know, the evangelical Christian doesn't believe there will be a 22nd century. Wall Street believes that uh, fossil fuel resources are worth two point four quadrillion dollars, right? In, you know, it's in the, those types of interests <laughs> right. can kind of resonate in in a way, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I'm, I'm I'm blanking now on the phrase you use in the book specifically, but but the sense in which they kind of um yeah work together that they are um. They have resonance. That's that's a specific phrase. Yeah. A resonance machine. Yeah, that that's a term yeah. that comes from the Johns Hopkins political theorist William Connolly, who talks about a, a res. It's a it's a Deleuzian influence. A, a resonance between uh, Wall Street and and evangelical Christianity. Uh, not not so that one is the puppet of the other, but that they in and they don't share the identical goals. Obviously. 
um, but they share resonances, you know, so uh, the the idea that uh, one believes in kind of uh, literal future denial in the terms of in the white evangelicals case. Uh, and then Wall Street, you know, the, the capitalist doesn't, the, the capitalist believes in the future in a sense, but they can't really think about the future more than a few financial quarters ahead, right? They, they have some places on the books where they're thinking in terms of 20-year bonds, uh, but that's about the extent, right? There, there's no, there's no uh, incentive to care about what happens in, uh, by 2050 in terms of net zero emissions, certainly not uh, 2,500 no, right. when we think that the seas will swallow the coasts, right? The, there's just no incentive to care about those things in either one of them. So they, they can mm-hmm. share not goals, but affinities that allow them to kind of play off each other and form alliances, even if they uh, don't share the same doctrine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, getting more into the subject between the relationship between the two, there's kind of a um, interesting irony that I think that that both Josh and I have talked about a bit um, growing up in evangelicalism. I I was lucky enough that my my uh, dad was not, uh, you know, my, my parents weren't end times obsessed, but I was around a lot of that. And I believe Josh comes from more of that background with the more premillennial dispensationalist stuff. Um, but there's kind of an yep. interesting irony growing up evangelical and resonating like like genuinely believing the world will end within the next either your lifetime or your children's lifetime and then getting older and realizing that is true in a different way (laughs) in the sense of climate disaster and i i think that's that the coming together of that that kind of irony is i think why i am so interested by this subject is kind of dealing with the weird resonances between the actual coming disaster climate change as you talk about versus um the way in which young evangelicals are prepared for that already in some sense and in another sense sure. you know like yeah yeah well i i think i mean you know the the stereotype of like the young evangelical uh raised in that milieu of of uh prophecy nonsense of course is is not just like you know will jesus come back in my lifetime but you even get you know i remember um you know me and my friends worrying like you know will jesus come back before we get to have sex for the first time as teenagers right <laughs> you know and and, I, and so you know in, in that and it's a very stare it's, it's funny right but but like what that also attests to is a concern not just that Jesus will come back in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime, but that that it very well may happen in the next few years, right? Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, it, I, I think you kind of get like it's a very imminent. kind of visceral kind of. It, it's it's hilarious on the, on the one end, but like you're you're talking also about a massive amount of stress uh, oh, at yeah. a at a very oh, yeah. formative you know set of years that that generates a kind of anxiety that people don't let go of easily, right? When when all of that doesn't come true, uh, people find ways to kind of justify the type of anxiety that they lived with for for so long um, and you know end up either leaving the faith altogether or uh, digging their heels in and and just yep. you know ice you know isolating themselves from everybody that they that they knew that kind of grew out of that I, that that example yeah. particularly was funny because we were talking off mic about that example before you hopped on and Josh had okay. said that about himself. <laughs> And uh, my girlfriend Kelly had chimed in like, no way. Is that a genuine belief that you guys all like dealt with growing up? And I was like, yeah, no, that's a very common thing. It's not just Josh. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it's, it's fascinating yeah, just to yeah. hear you chime in immediately with that as well. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Yeah. There's uh, going along with that. Yeah. It's that it's that anxiety, but also like this bone deep realization that your parents and caregivers don't care about your future. Like when it push yeah. comes to shove, there's like, yeah. Um, yeah. 
they don't believe it's it's happening right and there's there's no way around that with the with the climate crisis i mean we we all make decisions every day that will be here i mean you know about one-fifth of our carbon dioxide emissions um that literally just driving to get groceries uh we'll still be here Mm. in the atmosphere in five hundred thousand years um that that's a long enough timeline that that means that you will be helping to kill off species that have not yet evolved uh, and there's just there's no way to avoid that, right? It's incomprehensible. Uh, we know that all five wow. mass extinctions in Earth's history correlated strongly with drops or uh, rises in carbon dioxide. Uh, the the whole history of the Earth is really just the fluctuations of oxygen and carbon dioxide. That that that's what drives the the, the kill events. Um, and you know we're in a situation now where uh, the last time there was this much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the, the, the temperatures were about three degrees higher Celsius, and the oceans were fifty to eighty feet higher. Um, it is really mm-hmm. incomprehensible how much change we have done, and there's no off switch. There, there's nobody with agency, right? So and the evangelicals can be like kind of the bad guys here for uh, for enjoying that that kind of spectacle of destruction, but it's not clear to me that anybody really has the agency to uh turn off the switch right um you know at the end of the day the the reserves are still worth uh you know 200 uh, trillion dollars and and the total resources are 2.4 quadrillion dollars right um so so who who has agency in that situation Mm -hmm. well i get you know this is this is the question right but like where 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 is there still room to fight when it comes to this subject? You know, obviously there's a degree of hopelessness that's just inevitable, but obviously it's not like climate activism is not worth it. Of course, as well. I think there's, Mm -hmm. there's, there's stuff to be done. Like what, what is, what is that kind of look like? What, what, what is the, the fight? What, what are we fighting for? If you're fighting for as a climate activist or something, if it's kind of a given that we're, (laughs) we're going to extinct species that don't even exist yet, you know, like what are we? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's always the question, right? Like what, what can actually be done? Um, what can I do? What, what could we like, whatever, whoever, whatever that pronoun means, uh, what can we do at this point? Right. Um, and I think, you know, one of the, one of the prospects that we might have to face to do philosophy well on the subject is that there might be nothing that we can do, right? We, we, it might be down to just mm-hmm. adaptation and taking care of our communities as best we can. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, like it, I think we need to be very clear that there are all sorts of grifts and traps that we need to avoid. We need to think seriously about what the history of carbon offsets and footprints and these other tools that, you know, suck up a lot of oxygen out of the atmosphere and uh, you know, even hints of an energy transition, which we desperately need, but which is often kind of a Jevons paradox, where the more green energy we pull online, the more the total energy just keeps going up instead of leveling out. Um, we do need these types of things. I mean, we do need like an energy transition. Uh, but we also need to get better at recognizing the grifts so that we're not wasting time. Um, the things that I think we could uh, most usefully dedicate our time to is the the types of things that, uh, the, that the Marxist tradition tells us we always should be aiming for, right? Um, uh, we need to force reactionaries against their will, if necessary, to have housing and health care uh, and, <laughs> and work with dignity that's not just make work and email jobs, right? We need to use less of the things that are making us unhappy. Uh, 
and and just producing surplus value for um, for for some capitalist to pocket, right? Uh, we need to think about uh, adapting communities. We need to decouple uh, fu- education funding from uh, uh, millage tax, right? You know, like housing taxes in the area. We we need to do all the sorts of things that will allow people to move when the seas rise and the fires encroach. We need to do the types of things that build solidarity, like like I mean, like literally just union work, right? Like unionizing your workplace is actually like I think mm-hmm. a tremendously overlooked uh, part of the climate crisis because if people don't feel buy-in uh, to their communities and to their workplaces, then uh, all you're ever going to get is is looking out for me and mine, right? Because at some point, so I live in Baltimore, for example, right? Um, and I don't live close to the harbor. I'm in no danger of my house ever going underwater. Uh, I, I live about 70 meters above sea level, which is about what you get if you melted every single uh, last bit of ice in the entire world. The the, the seas mm-hmm. would rise about 70 meters. So I'm fine, right? Anytime in the next few thousand years, my house is fine. Um, but what will happen is the the storms will turn up, right? The hydrological cycle will get boosted with more energy and more heat. <laughs> Um, and that means that my basement won't flood more, right? And all of my neighbors' basements will flood, right? And so that means our housing value will go down, right? Uh, and what that also means is that the schools are going to start to get less taxes and businesses will pull out and segregation patterns will change, right? Uh, and the cops will get their budgets turned up while, while everything that makes life like worth living in our community drops, right? Um, so you can kind of see very quickly how like uh, things like a little bit of increased rain because of energy in the system. System. Uh, and we are putting a lot of energy in the system, right? The, the equivalent of 900,000 uh, Hiroshima atomic bombs per day, uh, energy inter- mm-hmm. every single day uh, introduced into our system. Um, th- it turns Jeez. up the rain, but it also it means that communities disintegrate and, and shift and become more racist and, and become more policed. And so, yeah, so little things like, uh, you know, <laughs> thinking about police abolition or prison abolition or unionizing your workplace, anything that we can do uh, to create a, like, a sense of solidarity and sort of a, um, a united purpose. I, I think th- those are the, the same things that mm-hmm. we have always needed to fight for um, are, are deeply pertinent here with the mm-hmm. climate crisis. And that's not a satisfying answer because it doesn't turn off fossil fuels, right? But it, but it, um, mm-hmm. it might help with, with thinking about better ways to um, you know, transition yeah. our energy system. Like, right? Yeah, I, I think it's still, I, I, yeah, it, it may not be the most satisfying answer, but it's, it's the best answer is there's still better or worse ways that the mitigation during climate catastrophe can be done. You know, there are, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, yeah that, you have to accept that you have to accept that, that you, yeah, you have to accept that you cannot do anything about this, right? Like you, you cannot change the system. Nobody in the world can change the system, right? If every single mm-hmm. fossil fuel exec got together in a room and said, for the good of the entire planet, we are going to strand all these assets and start winding them down this year. Uh, you know, what would happen? Like, you know, a, a thousand new startups would form overnight to apply for leases to those lands and governments that are dependent on those revenues would give the leases out, right? So even if the mm-hmm. fossil fuel execs had a change of heart, even they don't have the agency to meaningfully stop this system, right? Um, that is mm-hmm. going to probably come, you know, if anything, from uh, renewables falling in in price, right? That, I mean, that's sort of the best thing that we're mm-hmm. hoping for as far as an energy transition. But I, I do think it's very it's very difficult for someone coming out of an evangelical or any sort of Christian context to kind of get your head around the idea that there is no salvation. There is, there is you cannot be saved from this, right? That, like you, you were just going to, mm-hmm. you know... 
um, there's nobody coming to save us and and you are going to to go down uh, damned for what you've done um, and there's nothing you can do about it it's, it's very it's very yeah. disturbing but that that seems to be more or less the the situation that we're in uh, yeah. right it's a uh... I don't, it's kind of like Adam Kotzko's thing, like, surely we don't believe in heaven anymore, but sh- there there must be a hell uh, for the people that it would like, It would be nice. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, it would be nice. It's a nice thought. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. even so, like, you know, all of us in, in the North, you know, we, we contribute a lot more emissions than, than the global South, right? You know, like the, the top 1% of earners, I believe, uh, uh, produce uh, almost one and a half times as missions, as many emissions as the bottom half of humanity. Uh, you know, we're, we're definitely in the top 10%. We we produce considerably more. Um, so, you know, when I make that joke about driving for groceries, like, no, I mean, that, that really is like, it's, it's our lifestyle and it's, it's not just, you know, driving cars. It's like your, um, our food production, uh, you know, like the food that we eat, uh, takes mm-hmm. more energy to produce than it gives us in calories. Right. So in any other time in history, uh, if you, take more energy inputs than you get in energy outputs, you starve to death, right? We're able to eat the way that we do because of fossil fuels. And and um, and we uh, live on uh, the energy equivalent of about 100 people per person in the West, right? So so it, it's as if fossil fuels give you like kind of 100 servants that, that kind of like do extra work and create surplus for you, right? Um, yeah, it, it's a really yeah. hard problem to kind of get your mind around just how, how you know, um, integrated we are with this problem. Well, and, you know, so kind of returning to the subject of evangelicalism in light of everything mm-hmm. we've, we've just kind of discussed here. I think th- this is, I think, a worthwhile time to kind of return to the question of, of evangelicalism as the most, one of the most dangerous belief systems ever produced. Um, because, so, so w- what is the damage that evangelicalism can cause to the already existing fucked up situation <laughs> you know because it's it can still get worse what is the fear here what what is the what could a death cult make do to make this worse right yeah so the uh, what makes evangelicalism so terribly dangerous um is i mean i kind of think of it as twofold i mean when i mean one of it i think is just kind of classic um nuclear age fear of, of like when you hand the nuclear codes to to the, the the stupidest person who has ever existed in public life and are trying to do so again <laughs> that is a dangerous situation right like it could kill us all um, that that's not outside the realm of possibility the capital class does not want that right so I mean you know if, if, if ever their interest in ours align you know perhaps uh, the, the, <laughs> the impossibility of creating surplus value in a world scorched with nuclear weapons and nuclear winter uh, you know that you know maybe we have a little bit of safety there. Um, but I mean, uh, to, to put it, you know, down to the question of climate change, you know, evangelical policy, uh, or evangelical beliefs support ecocidal policy. And, and it's, it's no secret, right? We don't have to like elaborate the ways in which it does that. Uh, the Republican Party treats climate change as a joke. It always has. Uh, climate change denial is a uniquely American phenomenon that's kind of been exported in the same way that earlier in the 20th century we created evangelicalism and exported that through missionary money, much of which, by the way, was, of course, funded by, like, the the uh, Milton and Lehman Stewart, the, you know, through oil money, right? So so now right, you know, I, my right. joke is kind of like it's, it's very interesting that, like, oil funded evangelical missionaries and now the evangelical theology, uh, and part of that money, by the way, went to, like, the Schofield Reference Bible that spread the concept. Right. 
right. of this rapture. Uh, and now it's kind of coming full circle wow. where that theology is sort of supporting and buttressing uh, ecocidal policy, right? Um, one sort of story that always kind of like lingers in my mind is uh, during the Trump administration, the um, uh, one of the executive agencies essentially said, uh, climate change is real, it's happening. Uh, and, you know, that, that was fascinating mm -hmm. enough that, a, you know, an executive agency within the Trump administration would say that. But they tried to quantify how a vehicle regulation would uh, change policy, right? And they basically say, well, if these emission standards were kind of relaxed, uh, it would turn up the temperature, but only by a fraction of a degree. It would raise the sea levels, but only by, you know, this much of a millimeter or something like that. And they kind of lay out on paper, we're going to raise the seas and turn up the temperature by doing this, but it'll only be a little bit. And we'll get a lot mm -hmm. more money in the meantime, right? It'll make it a lot more easy for automakers to to pull in a bunch mm -hmm. of revenue, um, and it's it's that kind of it's a million little things like that, right? That uh, that Republicans love doing. Um, yeah. Going forward, I will say one thing that I'm very concerned about right now is that more and more Republicans uh, do actually believe in climate change, do think it's caused by human beings. And what that's going to do is not get them to like support like a, a clean, habitable, dignified future. What it's going to do is uh, turn up the support for sentry uh, drones on the borders. And, and th that type of like smart border technology will, of course, be something that liberals lap up as well, right? Um, it's going to be so cool when we have AI that can just detect who's a, a threat and, and just... Um, you know, gun them down right there or or move them into a processing center where they'll never be heard from again. Um, so, and so as belief, especially among younger Republicans, kind of turns up uh, on on concern for climate change, uh, th there's always that that fear that what that will actually do is uh, something like violence towards migrants or, oh, hey, um, Venezuela, a uh, country you haven't liked for uh, different reasons in the past. N now we need to invade you uh, because you're producing oil. Uh, like Iran, uh, you, you mm -hmm. need to be invaded too, right? I mean, uh, things could get quite violent um, as as more and more belief in climate change kind of dials up, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I a lot of these uh, are personal <laughs> obsessions of mine, dark fascinations. Um, but yeah, something I wanted to ask you about is like, you know, we talk about the the especially and against the uh, the evangelical capitalist resonance machine, but like, I don't know. Do you have any more thoughts on on like the military, the militarism of white evangelicals? Uh, I don't know. I, mm -hmm. Something that that comes to mind a lot is like that that uh, that book and documentary Constantine Sword about the you know the. Uh, the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, surrounded by mm -hmm. like uh, like Ted Haggard's mega church, and like yeah. this critical mass of cadets were evangelical Christians and were you know participating in like you know anti-Semitic bullying of their fellow cadets, like mm -hmm. based on that. And uh, I don't know, like you know, yeah, even more yeah. so than that than that. Like I mean, there there is this there is this real like death drive and thirst for annihilation that really does get uh, acted out in in military institutions mm -hmm. yeah I, you know um yeah I, I i am familiar with the the sort of the problem especially i have heard that it is particularly bad in the air force i've known a few people who went through the air force academy and, and would talk about how they have their own you know um you know christian like versions of the same christian ministries that i would have encountered in college but uh but they you know they have much more 
militant names and, and there's, there's a very clear like affinity between like thinking of yourself as a soldier uh you know uh, killing people who ought not uh, be living anymore and and a soldier for christ right um and you know i, I don't know where all that goes i you know i i know that uh one one story i talk about in my book is is how interesting it was when uh, uh, the Islamic State came on the scene to see the Joint Chiefs of Staff talking about the unique danger that this, what they described as an apocalyptic cult, uh, posed, right? And I thought it was it was absolutely fascinating to, to see, like, you know, a general in charge of an American military saying such a thing when uh, when one in three Americans and, and a quite large amount of the, the military, presumably, believe that the world will not be here in, in a century. And um, the, the difference is that unlike Islamic State, we have the nuclear weapons, we have the ability to raise the seas, um, and uh, in that violence that we perpetuate, uh, and it is, you know, it's an imperial military, it's, it hasn't played defense since the War of 1812, maybe um, and you know it's it, it's a, it's an aggressive hostile military uh, that kills a lot of people and and finds itself perfectly justified uh, you know in modern conflicts uh, some their statistics say that something like 85 to 90 percent of people who die in modern conflicts are civilians right? Uh, that's because you know the the people who really die are not the the people who get blown up with ordnance. It's the it's the the children that starve to death or die of easily preventable diseases under normal conditions, right? Um, so if if conflict means that we're we're killing eighty five to ninety percent civilians and the bulk of that is children, um, it takes a lot of it. I, I imagine it takes a lot of faith to believe that what you're doing is good when your job is mainly getting paid to kill children, right? Uh, that, that is something you must not know. That is something that you must suppress by any trick imaginable. And um, mm -hmm. I can only imagine that uh, <laughs> that that will become an even more pressing need in the years ahead. So I'm, I'm sure that, that Christian ministries in the military have, have good days ahead of them. Oh man. Um, yeah. What a, yeah. Evangelicalism is a perfect technology for kind of, you know, cleaning out that. It is a technology. To, yeah, yeah. 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 No, it's, it's absolutely a technology. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, man, and, and also in light of the, cause it, it's also like, is it's, is there some truth to the U.S. military being like the single largest polluter on the planet? Uh, it is. I, I don't like that stat, honestly. I, and I don't mean to defend okay. the military. I really don't like that. <laughs> uh, it, it is it is the single largest, uh, but it is something like 1% or 2% of the U.S.'s uh, pollution, right? Sort of in the same uh, way that it's the largest employer, but it's, you know, it's one employer among millions of employers. You know, I see. Okay. Or whatever yeah. it is, right. employers. Um, however, that stat, if I recall correctly, is only scope one and two emissions, uh, which the way the, there's a there's an accounting system for um, scope one is what you directly burn in operation. Scope two is what you buy for like electricity, uh, and scope three is everything kind of upstream and downstream in your supply chain. So businesses and states will use these. Uh, for example, like L Shell and Exxon and uh, BP all say that they have a plan to go carbon neutral, and what they mean is just their scope one emissions. Like they don't mean that. Like they're going to offset all of the emissions from their oil. They mean that they're just going to capture enough uh, through like cheap tree offsets to uh, offset their actual drilling rigs, right? But they're going to call themselves net neutral. Um, similarly, the military, when it accounts for its uh, carbon 
It is uh, just counting certain scopes. It's not actually counting all of the concrete that goes into uh, bases, which produces a massive amount of CO2. It's not talking about its entire supply chain. Um, you know, there's no conceivable replacement for jet fuel, for example, right? So that the mil anytime there is conflict for the foreseeable future, there will be massive amounts of emissions. Uh, interestingly, though, <laughs> going back to like the, I believe it was the Kyoto Protocol where they were going to talk about trying to keep an accurate record of military emissions. And Dick Cheney and his minions got an exemption for any military operation that's authorized by the UN, uh, which is basically all of them. You know, like if we're going to invade somewhere, we go and have the UN rubber stamp things. Uh, and so, uh, and then, uh, you know, to, to, you know, make it even worse, we didn't end up ratifying that Kyoto Protocol, right? So, so we kind of made this exemption just in case, and then we didn't do it, which is actually the history of liberal uh, climate governance as well, right? Right. Uh, what liberals constantly do is they kind of make, uh, you know, like people think of liberals as being like kind of the heroes, I think, especially because of the Obama role in the Paris Accord. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but what does he do afterwards? He comes back in like three weeks later, he lifts the oil export ban so that we can send all of this fracked shale oil uh, all across the world. And then the U.S. becomes the largest exporter of gas ever. Right. And so and so this is the constant role that the U.S. is in, whether it's liberal or um, um, uh, conservative administrations is being uh, in the position of taking like a step forward and then immediately sabotaging it. And I don't think enough Americans realize that uh, that we have that role. Even Obama, even even the characters that you would kind of see as like having like this, you know, this at least veneer of caring, uh, they are also the ones that are constantly sabotaging any progress made. And and that is that is one of the reasons why the world has so much skepticism whenever the U.S. kind of steps in and says, you know, you need to get net zero in, in 30 years mythically, just like we pretend like we're going to be, right? Right, so, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah it's all, all, all about the aggregate. I don't know, you know, it's, uh, right, I mean, there is still that desire in myself to just have the, like, the one great Satan, like, oh, if we just get rid of the U.S. military, everything will be fine. Then things are going to be fine, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh... However, the push toward, like, fighting against militarism or policing or you know policing on the borders etc i think is still mm -hmm. a worth is obviously still a worthwhile fight of course not 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 implying you didn't think it was that josh but <laughs> you know it, right. it's still a worthwhile fight because um you know like returning kind of to the 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 more and more militarized kind of evangel like lens and evangelicalism is kind of growing like like evangelicalism is shrinking but the the stuff that remains is becoming more explicitly fascist and militarist. And in some yeah. sense, it seems to be whether conscious or not, there seems to be a degree of that coming from an acknowledgement that climate change is on, you know, is, is coming because like, like you mentioned that, that this will kind of come out in like fighting, fighting at the border and stuff like that. It'll come out because, you know, of the mass migrations that are going to take place through my, through, you know, a climate catastrophe. And so mm -hmm. unfortunately, you know, it's the, the worldview of a lot of white evangelicals, whether they would have read this book or not would be camp of the saints. You know, it is the belief that this, this uh, unwashed global South is going to storm at us and we need to be prepared with guns. And yes, I, I think so. Yeah. 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 And, 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 what, and what, what migration looks like is going to be, uh, it, it's going, I mean, 
two thoughts you need to hold in your head at, at one and the same time is that vast regions of the world are going to be unlivable and also when those people move it is not going to feel like something that different than what we are already seeing right um so a perfect example of this is the 2018 migrant caravan so-called right where um, a group of migrants was moving up from uh, Honduras, Guatemala, and a, a few from, uh, I believe, El Salvador, if I remember correctly, mm, yeah, uh, yeah. coming up through central Mexico. And, you know, uh, um, uh, Trump immediately says, well, you know, we were hearing that there's ISIS fighters in there, you know, and what is he saying? He's saying these people are killable, right? Um, now, the migrants, when they were pulled, the, the, very few of them kind of directly perceived themselves to be climate change migrants, um, but they would talk about the historic drought, like my, my coffee crop did not produce anything last year. Uh, and if we're going to starve to death, um, it, it's just as well that we're starving to death on the way trying to get into the U.S., right? Uh, those those people were not perceived as, as climate migrants, but that's precisely what they are, right? And uh, some, uh, I'm particularly influenced by some, some actually really good work done by like the Potsdam Institute that uh, talks about how um, uh, okay, so you have these very kind of big figures of like possibly, according to the UN, as many as a billion climate migrants uh, by 2050, which is not that far away, right? I mean, that's like my, like my kids will be in college, like you know, by by the time that we're in grad school, you know, like when when we're that time frame, it's not that far away. Um, but like, you know, an Oxfam says that there's already 20 million people displaced by climate fuel disasters already, 20 million people per year, uh, which comes out to by 2050, that's something there in the, the 600,000 or 600 million range. Um, so we don't really know exactly how many people there will be. But one of the things that we do think is that it's mostly going to look like a lot of the same, right? Uh, most migrants are going mm. to move internally. They're going to shift because of some disaster or move because of what they think of as work. But it might be work that's because the fields have dried up somewhere else or right, uh, you right. can't get AC here. Um, and so I don't, I mean, just kind of making a, just maybe a little further out. I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility to think of like a global behemoth like Amazon uh, essentially starting to acquire cheap nations that are struggling financially uh, and, you know, creating like economic zones where, uh, you know, it's tariff-free and export processing zones and these types of things that we're already seeing in, in different places in the world uh, where you can have essentially kind of like almost like an old school company coal town, but you can do that for producing, you know, new little treats that Amazon's going to throw at the West and, and you know, and, and it'll be great for us, right? Like it'll, it'll be like, you know, cheaper treats than ever, uh, but what you will, uh, you know, the see Again, this is kind of this is a little more speculative here, right? Uh, but I can easily envision a future in which the um, the concept of a place that can no longer be lived in merges with a need for cheap commodities, which merges with things like migrant concentration camp that becomes work town, right? Uh, in a nation that's financially stressed and uh, getting a lot of you know, uh, extra, uh, you know, cash infusions from from a global behemoth like Amazon or Goldman Sachs and so forth, right? Um, again, maybe a little further out there, um, but I, I don't think that that's, mm -hmm. that's that difficult to kind of imagine. Um, and if that is the case, then uh, we will treat it exactly the way we treat Foxconn plants uh, in in the East, or uh, you know, um, mm. you know, migrant concentration camps in South Texas. Now, in in this sense, I think this kind of merges, um, you know, which which you do throughout the book, but kind of merges the um, the the notion that we haven't talked as much about as you know, white evangelicalism as being about chosenness and whiteness. Um, mm. 
kind of merges with the apocalyptic climate related stuff because there needs to, you know, there would still need to be a way to justify and maybe even get it pleasure out of the necessary, like the cruelty to maintain the system you've just described Mm -hmm. as things go on. Um, Yeah. 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 One of my big intuitions early on is that uh, basically white evangelicals don't believe in any of the doctrines that they that they claim that that, that basically (laughs) all of the doctrines boil down to chosenness. Right. I mean, you have like the uh, is it the the is it Bebbington, the guy with like the four that like crucicentrism, Mm -hmm. biblicism or the activism or whatever the various you find various Mm -hmm. ways that people try to categorize what is white evangelicalism like what 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 do they actually believe what you know what what's actually important Mm -hmm. to to the white evangelical um and i've always just found all of those hollow uh you know as a former white evangelical myself um i've never seen a description that really felt true to my experience um but I am very, very aware that they really obsess over uh, the difference between inerrancy and infallibility. They obsess over what exactly we mean by substitutionary atonement or election. These these very kind of minute, uh, irrelevant doctrines that really boil down to a, a sense of being chosen, right? Uh, you know, and, and this is, you know, part of this is kind of the, the classic supersessionist move, right? Uh, claiming the sort of the Jewish like promise to Abraham for ourselves and claiming that you know uh, we are the 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 real continuation of of that lineage of blessing and so forth right um but at the same time i i mean i kind of said this as a joke early on i I feel like like the history is kind of uh uh, borne out pretty well in in my favor unfortunately but uh, i i kind of had this intuition that like uh even like belief in the Bible's inerrancy or even, frankly, belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God are all negotiable for a white evangelical as it exists today. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the way that we've seen uh, statistical data since uh, the end of the Trump administration kind of bear out uh, that people who call themselves white evangelicals uh, often aren't churchgoers anymore. They don't seem to believe anything or have necessarily any sort of religious connection, which is unfathomable even a decade ago that, that a white evangelical yeah. oh, would be defined yeah. by not going to church. But, you know, um, it, as you kind of get like like the the predictor is is being part of a re- the Republican Party, right, basically, right, more and more. Um, or I would – I would. Be, I haven't seen research on this, but given that uh, about one in five Americans believe something adjacent to the QAnon conspiracy theory, I would bet you a more reliable predictor of white evangelicalism either already is or soon will be. Um, rather than belief in Jesus as the Son of God, it will be something like belief that there's a pedophile cabal uh, of of Satan worshippers out there in Hollywood. Right. Um, it, it, it. All of these beliefs are negotiable. Right. Like uh, you know the um, when they used to say that Jesus was the son of God, or we believe in inerrant uh, Bible, or we believe in substitutionary atonement. That's really no different than now saying we are the child defenders against these people who want to corrupt the children with gender and, and sex and stuff, right? Um, mm. It's it's just chosenness, right? It, it's just like, we are the good guys, you are the bad guys. Um, it's rather simple, right? It, it just gets like a, like a theological package that sort of improvises itself around it. I, you know, and this is, uh, this is in part why the book resonated with me for, for so long now, because, um, this is the description that I think has made more sense to me than like you'd said, most, most others I'd, I'd run into with white evangelicalism. And in part, it's 
because yeah i think the the concept of this like chosen group that we all you know we we as in it, when i was an evangelical belonged to you know i think that was always fundamental to it and i especially think that you know that that specifically resonated with me because i i didn't have as much of the end time stuff but i was still in evangelical culture and that was that was the aspect was differentiating between Christian music and secular music or between, mm-hmm. you know, every little silly little delineation. It's an us versus them kind of delineation. But the actual doctrines that define who belongs in, like you say, are negotiable. And I, I, mm-hmm. I think that that's something that those who are more like philosophically in- inclined, you know, young evangelicals tend to be really frustrated with the project as time goes on. Because mm-hmm. you'll be like, oh, you say you believe this thing, but I'm reading the Bible and it says something different. And the right, the yeah. contradictions don't make any, you know, they don't matter to most white evangelicals. <laughs> like, because it's a political right. project, not a, not as much a religious project. I mean, it is religious, but it's um in the apocalyptic sense. But it's, um yeah, it, it's, it's much more a political project than one of orthodox Christian doctrine. <laughs> yeah, no, well, it, it it's searching for a cause, right? To feel special, yeah. right? To, to mitigate that anxiety and to defend at all cost against shame, right? I mean, one of the... One of the claims I make is that you know shame is 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 the worst of things, and, and people will spend a lot of time trying to live in anxiety rather than feel shame, right? Like it, it's much better to um, yeah. constantly bother yourself with apologetics or uh, constantly try to like not have sex or to be just culturally off-putting in in a million different ways. It's much more preferable than to kind of feel the shame of like a wasted existence, right? Uh, and and face up to the the realization that your your beliefs and your actions are concretely hurting people um, that 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 would be cause for shame so that must be kept at a distance one thing that I think is you know if you think about like in the 90s or early aughts the way that you kind of get like a Christian um, simulacrum of everything right like you know as you mentioned mm-hmm. like Christian music versus you know other music or whatever uh, you have this kind of like fraught moment after the end of the Cold War where all of this kind of like anti-communist hysteria which was kind of built around not just opposition to communism but uh, you know, there was also the the figure of the, um, you know, anti-communism also had like uh, anti-black impulses. It, it definitely had like an anti-gay element, if you think back yeah. to like the, the types of things that McCarthy was actually persecuting and stuff, right? Um, so like evangelicalism kind of like comes out of this Cold War period as kind of a reaction to um, desegregation of schools and, uh, and uh, you know, civil rights movement and all that. Um, but it's kind of at a loss once it kind of loses all those battles, right? Like once it, once once the schools actually do desegregate and it's fine, uh, once uh, the Cold War ends and it doesn't have its great um, enemy to sort of you know position itself, it gets into these weird little cultural war battles and it doesn't really know what to do with itself for a while. And I, I think that's why Trump has been such a blessing to them is because it kind of reinvigorated. Oh, dude, we can just be straightforwardly hostile and 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 vile and and do a lot of violence uh, towards uh, towards uh, non-white people again, right? Um, and I, I think and I don't mean that like in a in sort of a one the metaphor that this kind of comes back to me is um, in their book Merchants of Doubt, uh, Conway and Oreskes. Uh, basically look at these uh, four or five characters who kind of pop up um, 
in uh, the uh, in a series of in a series of catastrophically evil causes. Basically, four or five guys, uh, all scientists uh, and so forth, um, or, or or very clever marketers, were involved with defending big tobacco from claims that cigarettes cause cancer. Uh, they were involved in uh, arguing that nuclear war would be survivable, and and you know, arguing for Reagan's Star Wars program to shoot down ICBMs with lasers. Uh, they were part. Uh, they they were engaged with uh, claiming that that destroying the ozone would not be so bad. Uh, you know, like just baseline everybody getting cancer. You know, who cares? You know, we can survive it or whatever. Um, they did all of these evil things, but like one of the arguments is that after the end of the Cold War, they basically didn't have a cause anymore. Um, they had kind of run as far as they could on the smoking thing. They didn't have a Reagan Star Wars program to deal with anymore. The Montreal Protocol had kind of settled the ozone uh, CFCs debate. Um, so they were kind of adrift at the end of the Cold War, right? And what saved them was Hansen, uh, James Hansen, uh, testifying before Congress in 1988 that the world was warming, it, that it was going to warm, and it had already begun the same year that the IPCC started, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and this growing awareness that we're going to have to do something about this, right? So this same group of guys starts, just, you know, um, they, you know, start off with the Marshall Institute. Now we have like the Heartland, uh, you know, Institute project, whatever it is called. You have all of these conservative think tanks, Cato, that kind of pop up. Uh, and, you know, whereas before they, they didn't have their Cold War to fight anymore, but in climate change, they got a new life, right? And I think that there's, um, there's more than a little resonance with how evangelicalism, uh, was kind of adrift after it kind of lost its segregation battles uh, and not really won the Cold War, but, you know, more or less didn't have that to kind of op oppose itself to. Um, it was kind of adrift for a while, right? Um, and it just so happened that these conservative think tanks for the fossil fuel industry uh, kind of were able to link up with them uh, in the aughts and uh, the 2010s uh, and give it a new life, right? So that now they can be sort of fully expressive of the, the racism and the hostility, uh, but also the ecocidal policy that's been sort of, you know, uh, nurtured within, you know, uh, with it by the people who have the money, right? So, right. I mean, yeah, just going back to against and what drew me back to it, it, it was like the first book I read that just like called evangelicalism on all its bullshit, like just all the disavowals, yeah. all the all the deflections, you know, it's just like, no, it's about desire, fuck what they're saying, like it's, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, actions <laughs> well, attest to you. beliefs <laughs> rather than just what they're, what they're saying, you know, so uh, mm -hmm. I don't know, yeah, going through it, 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 it really made me feel less insane, because uh, I, I, yeah, uh, I don't, I, Dude, one of the I nicest don't. things I can hear as an author. I, I, I genuinely do. I love that. I appreciate that very much. Um, no, I mean, that is, I think, um, that's, I hear some version of that um, by nearly everybody who was kind of raised in that environment that kind of says, like, this feels like it was naming something that I that uh, that needed to be mm -hmm. named. And uh too many people dance around that, and and so it is very kind. I really appreciate uh, when when people say something to that effect uh, because it is it was kind of scary on the one hand, you know, right? Because I'm I'm kind of bearing my soul. I'm I'm saying that I 
uh, you know, more or less survived this, which means that I have all kinds of weird stuff in my background that I that I'm still trying to sort out, right? In a way, and, and this book <laughs> yeah. is kind of like a, a process of kind of like answering some questions. Um, and it's it's been so deeply meaningful to me that it's that it's uh, resonated with mm-hmm. others as well. Yeah, yeah. Because I think like I mean I'm you know I was born in '89, like right at the end of the Cold War, into into this adrift evangelicalism, mm-hmm. kind of wrote uh-huh. out the. Uh, you know the the turbulence and aimlessness of 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 the of the nineties, and then you know nine eleven hits. You know, there, so there's a there's a couple of these causes that kind of like uh, solidify. But I mean, it's it's a unique. I mean, yeah, right. We're both we're both millennials. Like it's it, it it's like sort of this uniquely insane time to be alive and and formed. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. right, I, I think what what the book really gets at and what we've been, we've been talking about and I kind of what I focus on is like the viciousness of it. The, I mean, like mm-hmm. just how ugly this belief system really is and like the desires it inculcates. Cause it's like, yeah. these were desires instilled in me. And then I, I mean, I can just, re- you know, I won't go into detail here, but it's like, you know, there are these key moments like in childhood and adolescence where it's like, I was clearly picking up on the, like the like there was a lot of aggression coming out of me or you know uh the uh and 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 stuff like that uh you know nothing nothing too insane but just like you know utterances you know things i thought would mm-hmm. that would be acceptable that you know really disturbed the adults in my life um because mm-hmm. you said explicitly what they were saying implicitly right right yeah right, and yeah. then it's like then i read this book and it's like all right right i'm not you know yeah i was like i'm not insane like there what was there was always there um yeah yeah, yeah. and now um, and, and yeah. uh right and, and like especially yeah having that that written during the trump moment where that really is the mask off moment like that was it, the, mat, it, yeah. the movement just yeah. goes feral at that point because it it knows it's dying to some extent yeah i think that's when a lot of people um a lot i think a lot of people um are are between like your age and then like i I was born in like 97 so i represent like the younger end of this but like i'm 86 so (laughs) it's um no yeah uh yeah so kind of like representing this whole like decade of a generation here right is like you know i i I saw this kind of like this environment and how it uh you know kind of i i think for a lot of people of our age that that trump was the moment when it was like oh they're not playing anymore like they're not pretending that this religious justification even really makes sense it's this Mm -hmm. is the cruelty made explicit yes yeah i I mean i i feel like i was pretty like politically formed by kind of three moments in my kind of adult yeah. life after college. And and one of them would have been the great recession that I, I graduated into uh, mm-hmm. and just felt like, you know, like the, the, you know, so many of us in the older millennial cohort just felt like it was a catastrophic loss of the future. Right. I mean, I literally graduated and, and I worked a tech support job for AT&T because nobody was hiring. Um, and uh, oh, you know, that got God. me into grad mm-hmm. school. But once I was in grad school, I had this other moment where, um, you know, uh, Trayvon Martin, is murdered and then uh darren wilson gets off for for killing uh, michael brown and and so, so you have these these um so you know i'm starting to find myself like marching 
the streets with people, but also seeing, you know, family members and, and former friends on social media being like, I wish they would just, you know, run these people down, right? You know, just run them mm-hmm. over with their cars. Uh, and I also like watched people think it was really cool when conservative legislatures were like passing laws to make that more okay, right? Um, um, which especially happened quite a bit again with the, the George Floyd uh, protest in, in 2020. Um, and then, yeah, and, but then there was this moment of like the Trump administration was just something like just just next level, right? You know, the, mm-hmm. the idea that you could get like so viscerally excited about somebody who's, uh, you know, talking about, you know, deporting 7 million people and bragging about, you know, sexual assault and so forth. And uh, I always have this one moment that really crystallized it for me when the, the Access Hollywood tape came out. And, you know, so many right. people were saying, oh, that's it, that's it. The, his his campaign's over. Uh, you know, he just lost the election. Uh, and there was this other minority of perspective. I, I think I only heard women say this. Uh, but the other perspective was, uh, you know, whereas some people were saying he's bragging about sexual assault, he just lost the election. You know, other people were saying uh, this. You know, smaller uh, number of people were saying, "Oh my God, he's bragging about sexual assault. He just won the election, right?" Um, and and yes. I, I really remember viscerally hearing people like say, "Like, oh my God, he's bragging about this. This is going to get it for him. He's going to win." Um, and and knowing oh, deeply that that yeah. had to be true, right? That 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 is that's funny. That's cool uh, in in white evangelicalism, right? Uh, and it's fine because God can you know you, you pray for forgiveness. You're fine, right? Um, so. Uh, you know, like that, that, that to me was kind of like a, a politically, I don't, formative, I guess, I don't know. Well, it, it's not that it concretely changed anything, right? At the same time, it was just the manifestation of an ideological disposition. So it doesn't, it doesn't concretely change the, the material reality, right? If we're kind of getting back into no. a Marxist uh, uh, perspective. Um, and of course, you know, um, you know, <laughs> there's no shortage of, of liberals who have those kind of same like vulgar impulses and histories as well, right? Um, it was just that it was so out in the open and all of my impulses that kind of said, I don't think that white evangelicals care about anything that they say they do. Um, but if you're raised in that mm-hmm. environment, you're still taught to doubt yourself so much that you can kind of, uh, you know, if someone tells you white is black and so forth, right? You know, you, you, you try to trick yourself into thinking, well, okay, they, they can't be that deceived, right? They can't be that foolish or that crass or that cruel. Um, and so, so I think it was, I think it was good and liberating for a lot of people to kind of see, um, oh yeah. And like, actually, uh, this is a, this is a faith built around cruelty and then the enjoyment of, of careless suffering. Um, and, and there's no real getting around that. Right. I mean, uh, you just can't, um, <laughs> just, it's, it's, it's just there, right. Like there's, you can't, you can't reform that. Yeah. And I, I agree. Like what you were saying with, with Trump kind of being, um, a moment where you know like like before we've been saying like the mask off but more than that that it's a moment that um you know was almost kind of a relief to those who grew up around it where they started to real like actually see oh no they okay okay i was right this is about cruelty and hmm. um i so in the the previous episode of the show i i uh interviewed uh, another guy josh borman um who was talking a bit about his upbringing and he had brought up this notion of not being allowed to express anger growing up and building up Mm -hmm. a lot of resentment. And we had kind of come to a conclusion that that environment in some ways makes perfect sense out of Trump because it's a way to have someone else do your cruelty for you. Um, Mm. If you are like not comfortable with fully expressing that anger, although of course they have now become more and more comfortable expressing that anger and that cruelty throughout the Trump admin, but at least the initial attraction seems 
to be that outlet, that ability to express that cruelty that was building up and innate in the belief system. I don't know. Right. Yeah. And I don't know about that. You know, like uh, that, that, that may be a good way to put it. It, I, I, something I'm also kind of like always kind of, you know, back of mind is that, uh, what, what, what Trump does is kind of save white evangelicalism by allowing it to enact a certain fantasy scenario. Uh, mm-hmm. and I, I mean, one way to kind of maybe put this is like, I'm not actually sure how many white evangelicals I know, uh, you know, from my past that would actually want to persecute me. Right. I know, I know there's all sorts of fantasies about persecuting people. Like I wouldn't know they, I know they Mm -hmm. would post memes about it and cheer it on if it happened, but I don't know how many of them would actually do some, like do a cruel act. Right. Uh, I don't know how many Mm -hmm. of them would actually pick up a gun if, if, uh, if, if, you know, Trump asked for the, you know, to, you know, uh, people to, you know, come free him or whatever, you know, if he goes to prison or whatever, which was of course not going to happen. But, um, but you know, um, I think it's that sense of like not knowing how serious the cruelty is. That's really disorienting. Right. It's the, it's the, you know, people can post memes all day. People can like cheer on the violence. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're sitting in their house just kind of alone they've you know isolated they've you know they've alienated themselves mm-hmm. from their grandchildren and and so forth and, and they're just lonely right and uh the only way they can kind of um suture that loneliness to something like meaning is by kind of living into the the violent fantasy and the uh the edge lording and and so forth right so mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. I don't mean to like stick up for them here, but uh, no, you know, there, no. there is that aspect too of like uh, how much of this is an actual threat, right? Because in, in liberal world, like Trumpism is constantly perceived as like the end of the world, like uh, like death right. one threat, right? Um, and uh, if you know, taking things from like a, a sort of a more Marxist perspective, like I'm inclined to, uh, Trump is kind of uh, in a little bit of an aberration, but just just kind of in his style, right? And he's carrying on basically yeah. so that things can remain the same right um and and that's not even just like like an aberration for republicans it's also you know like trump does this you know title 42 um you know illegal like a like you know depriving people of asylum rights um and then biden continues right um you know trump Mm -hmm. you know ramps up fossil fuel extraction and biden comes in and you know issues even more permits right um you know uh, you know uh, you know we have the classic example of obama you know uh deporting more people than than ever before right you know so 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 many of these things are actually just kind of continuations and i think it's important to kind of keep that in mind uh, because uh, it is easy to make a uh, uh, an enemy um, <laughs> uh, of somebody just because they're so kind of over the top, ridiculous and right. stupid, right? So, anyways, now I've now I've defended white evangelicals and defended Trump and <laughs> yep, and and go. all of that, Fantastic. you know. So, <laughs> well, well, yeah, because backs me into ultim- a quarter here, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, yeah. Ultimately, the chuds are mostly like. Yeah, depressed middle class white people. Like, yeah, they can afford mm-hmm. the guns, but like they're so they're so bound to their own comfort that like mm-hmm. they're yeah, they're just ultimately they're not gonna do anything about it. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean I think you know, if there was anything like really uh 
uh, I don't know, illuminating in a, like a, a positive sense from that whole, you know, those four years. Um, it's it's probably the way that it kind of radicalized people. It made things like a Rashida Tlaib or an AOC possible uh, or a, 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 mm. a Bernie campaign that was, you know, on on path to, to, to win before the Democrats kind of uh, shut that whole thing down. Um, but, you know, I mean, like, you know, it, it made like kind of a, a, a little bit more of a social democracy, slightly left of center opening. Uh, yeah. Uh, possible in a way that I don't think would have been possible without the mass disgust, right? Um, so that's that's very interesting because it wasn't as if the material conditions were significantly changed. It was just kind of a, a realization mm-hmm. that, like, oh no, like like Trumpism is is uh, is more vulgar. Uh, but actually, mm-hmm. liberals are promising something that's kind of in the same vicinity. They both don't want you to have health care. They both don't want to lower the rent. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they they both don't want migrants here. Um, and and uh, and so there was like a little bit of a left opening that I think um, is is very kind of maybe something worth kind of thinking about, especially as we kind of enter into a, sort of a fifty fifty shot to the second Trump administration, right? Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, so moving on from this conversation here a little bit, I know that you are working on a new book um, specifically focused on climate change and that kind of you know subject matter. Do you want to say a little bit about that or... Yes, I'm. I'm extremely excited. It, it, it should be out, I believe, in April of 2024. Uh, the mm-hmm. book is called uh, "Future of Denial: The Ideologies of Climate Change." Um, it was sort of. It was born of a moment where uh, you know the, the COVID lockdowns were happening, and I, the Bernie campaign had flamed out, and um, I was sort of just kind of back my mind. I was kind of aggregating stories and, and bookmarking stories that just felt like weird forms of climate denial. Um, I think part of that started with you know kind of the Corbin uh, platform and the Bernie mm-hmm. campaign at the basically within a few months of each other proposed the most ambitious uh, climate platform ever in in those in the UK and the US uh, and those were stamped down and, and it was kind of this intuition that oh no like the the liberals will not allow this to happen the way that we need it to happen right um, mm. that the, the liberals can't be counted on and at the same time I was kind of you know noticing stories of like Greece putting up nets in the Aegean Sea to capture and drown migrants uh, the reports mm. that drone strikes basically happen on the aridity line where people are, are you know, you know, uh, you know, stressed, um, uh, you know, uh, well, there's a state on the eastern seaboard that uh, responded to um, predictions of uh, sea level rise and the way that it would affect property values by passing a law to make it illegal to form policy around uh uh, sea level rise projections. There were just all these little stories that I started um, accumulating that felt like climate denial to me. Um, it's very interesting to me that, uh, you know, as a religion scholar and a philosopher, that we talk about denial so differently in climate change than we do in basically every other subject. So I'm not trying to torture some new definition of denial. I'm saying that we talk about climate denial like it's just the problem of people saying, I don't believe in climate change or I don't believe it's human caused. Um, every other area of life, I mean, if you think about like, you might say a teenager's in denial about their mortality uh, enacted by smoking a cigarette or, or driving recklessly. You might say somebody is in uh, denial about their their fading youth by having a midlife crisis and an affair or something like that, right? Uh, we talk about people um, enacting denial all of the time in kind of material ways, uh, but just not in climate change. With climate change, we're the Protestants. You have to think the correct thoughts in order to be saved, right? Um, and so I'd, I'd been, you know, sort of mm. working out a lot of uh, thoughts like that and and uh, one day, just a, an editor from Verso had heard about me because of um, 
the Magnificast and this book against, uh, you know, contacted me and, um, uh, you know, said, you know, do you maybe have like a, an idea that you're working on? And I kind of did. And so, so for the last, I guess, um, I'm going on like, uh, two and a half years now, uh, mm-hmm. I've just been piling climate change into my head constantly. I've tried to learn the yeah. physics really well. Um, I've learned carbon markets, uh, the the migrant violence, uh, the whole history of the, you know, the the paleoclimate record and how it tracks with carbon dioxide. Um, I've tried to do something that I couldn't find numbers anywhere clearly very satisfying, which is just adding up how much the actual value of all fossil fuels is. That seems like kind of an important question, kind of along the same mm-hmm. lines of how many Americans don't believe there will be a 22nd century, but it's not something that I could ever find a good number on. Um, so I, I tried to kind of aggregate all of these questions that I had kind of as a, as a religion scholar who will tell you, you know, the way that people behave religiously has almost nothing to do with what the doctrines are, right? It's, it's never the correct thoughts mm-hmm. that actually drive group behavior. Um, so how can we think about climate change in a way that does not do what most IPC scientists will will say is that we need to like get more people believing correctly, right? We need to ramp up the correct thoughts. Um, yeah, you know, so mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of approach this more as, okay, well, it doesn't actually work that way in, in philosophy and religious studies. Um, so mm-hmm. what can, what can maybe kind of an interdisciplinary take on this that takes the science very seriously, um, and is actually reading the primary sources, uh, but also kind of imports, uh, lessons from our disciplines that might have something to add. Um, so it is a, it's a, it's a Marxist and psychoanalytic take on, uh, the climate crisis that, that, um, you know, great, I'm very lucky that the IPCC came out with their uh, recent report kind of yeah, in plenty yeah. of time for me to kind of incorporate that. So it's it's got like the the you know the pretty close to the latest uh, <laughs> research and uh, you know and I, I, you know it's a it's a book that I kind of designed to kind of be a, a choose your own adventure uh, a little bit. You know, like you can get like kind of the main text and the gist of what's going on. And if you really want me to uh, show you the math of how all of this works, you can you know dig into the footnotes and and you know I kind of leave okay, it to the yeah. reader to kind of judge how how deep they want to get into this. Uh, to the math and physics and so forth. Uh, but I'm terribly excited about it. Um, and it, it feels like, um, you know, against actually, I'll just uh, wrap it up with this. I will say um, the, uh, I, I've always felt like every book that I've written um, started with, you know, a particular question. And there's usually a question at the end of the book that feels mm-hmm. not sufficiently explored. And the question um, from the prior book before against was this this relationship of climate change to apocalypticism. So I, I you know, I designed, that, that was the first thing that I wrote was this relationship of apocalypticism and climate change. And yet, even at mm-hmm. the end of against, I felt like the climate angle was still kind of lingering. So um, it's been, it's been wonderfully fun and terrifying and, and frankly, a little bit hopeful as well uh, to kind of dig into this literature and, and kind of look at what's on the horizon. Absolutely. Well, I am, I am very excited to, to read it once, once it's uh once it's out. So yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to plug before we kind of wrap up here. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to, you know, reference. No, or, I mean, I, I think yeah. if anybody wants a, a preview, uh, I, I, a few weeks ago, I published an article in Protean Magazine that you can find online if you just search Tad Delay and uh, the article titles The Gilded Age of Carbon. 
uh, that gives kind of a preview. It's kind of an engagement with this problem of offsets and and what they actually are and uh, how we can actually add up. You know whether or not they're making a difference and and uh, you mm-hmm. know why is it that that companies increasingly claim to be carbon neutral when when they're actually not right uh, and, and yeah. why is that legal to do so um, so yeah if, if anybody Absolutely. wants kind of a preview of what I'm working on that would be a great place to start but uh, nothing else to plug now absolutely i'll uh, i'll put that in the show notes for anyone who's interested uh, if you, if you want to find me i'm on twitter sort of i'm uh, on on blue sky as well and um, yeah so there we go um all right well i think that's it uh thank you everybody for listening to fruitless um and thank you tad for joining us thank you so much for listening to fruitless this show is, of course, brought to you by uh, our patrons, our, our only patron right now, Chris Barker. Um, shout out to Chris Barker. If you want to join the list of names at the end of the episode, check out the Patreon in the show notes. And if you like what you heard today, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and maybe checking out the back catalog. The Patreon is growing a little bit here. We will have some bonus content soon. One of them being uh, Josh Christensen joining me again to kind of reflect on the last two interviews that we've had on evangelicalism and maybe talk a little more personally. So uh, consider consider uh, becoming a patron to hear that. And uh, have a wonderful day.